In the face of the current atrocities perpetrated against the Ukrainian people by the government of Russia, we want to make you all aware of an opportunity to provide free therapy to those most impacted by the war in Ukraine. The organization called It's Complicated has created a platform for therapists from all around the world to offer their services for free. Particularly if you speak Ukrainian or Russian, please consider creating a profile at itscomplicated.life slash en slash Ukraine. It's Complicated is providing a secure online platform to conduct the sessions and will match people needing support with available therapists free of charge. Please consider creating a profile to provide free therapy to those impacted by the war. Go to itscomplicated.life slash en slash Ukraine. We want to give you an update about somatic integration and processing trainings coming up. SIP-1 and SIP-2 are both approved for 21 NBCC hours, and we have big news. They are also each approved for 10 hours of approved advanced credit through MDRIA. So if you're working on your EMDR certification, SIP trainings can count towards your needed advanced training hours. We're so excited to be able to offer this to all of you. More exciting news is that we're offering SIP-1 for an Australian time zone. On July 22nd through the 24th, we will host a virtual training starting at 7 a.m. UTC plus 10. If you're in another time zone, you're welcome to attend this one as well. But we've had so many people from Australia reach out about SIP that we wanted to make it more accessible for all of you. We also have SIP-1 available in American time zones on June 23rd through the 25th, and again on October 20th through the 22nd. Go to our website for all this info and more at beyondhealingcenter.com or email us at trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. Thanks so much. Welcome to The Evidence-Based Therapist, a podcast where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find three therapists discussing cutting-edge research articles, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Welcome to The Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. Today, there's three of us in the studio. It's been We're a minute, back. guys. What? We are hey. back. So I've been uh, doing a few other things and uh, happy to be back. Happy to be back with uh, one of my articles. There it is. I picked and I'm excited about this article. So today we're going to be talking about an article called Roots to Embodiment uh, by Corner et al. And this is in Frontiers in Psychology, which is a lovely source. That's right. It's open access, which what that means is it's free. Go uh, sign up and they'll send you... Uh, articles that um, are, you know, of interest to you. You can kind of teach it what you're interested in and you'll get emails every single day. (laughs) You might want to read about this. Um, So today we're talking about roots to embodiment. And uh, the reason why I chose this article is because we're going to start a series on embodiment and somatic psychology. And this felt like a really good introduction because it's specifically looking at the actual mechanisms behind embodiment mm. as in what's actually going on back there what or does in it even there. Mean? <laughs> um, and the purpose of this article is to delineate the mechanisms so that they can be researched. 
Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that, but rather than doing like a really intricate deep dive into the nitty gritty of each mechanism, we're going to keep it a little bit more general and practical to what this means for therapists. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like embodiment is a little bit of a buzzword right now for therapists. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just for people. Yeah. I feel like. Well, that's true. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, you know, we have all kinds of phrases that are popping up, things like embodied activism, mm-hmm. right? Um, embodied movement, mm-hmm. embodied parenting, yes. embodied relationships, embodied eating. <laughs> all kinds of mm-hmm. Yes. So what the heck does it mean? Right. right? <laughs> so that's actually where we're going to start is the, what does it mean? Um, do we need to talk about anything before we dive in? I'm just ready to dive in. Um, no, let's just dive let's in. Let's do it. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so uh, what's embodiment, you guys? Well, one of the in the article, their main goal is to look at how the body, what is the body's role in information processing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when we start to think about how we're thinking and how we're organizing our experience, how how is that dependent upon the body? Mm-hmm. So then they they quote or they operationally define embodiment as the effect where the body, its sensory motor state, its morphology, or its mental representations play an instrumental role in information processing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the body, your physical beingness, its sensory motor state, mm. which we're going to talk a little bit more about, its morphology, how it can change and adapt and be mm-hmm. manipulated, and its mental representation. So that would be like, how the brain comes to represent interoceptively and exteroceptively the body and its morphology experiences and all of that. And all of that goes into this term embodiment, which is how basically your neck down plays a role in how you organize information from the world. Mm -hmm. And then you use that information to do what you do on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's important. So when we're talking about information processing, we're talking about psychological systems and the mechanisms that this article delineates and that we're going to talk more about are the basics of those psychological Mm -hmm. systems. So it embodiment for some, I think is almost like at least the impression that I get when people talk about it is that it's like anti Mm -hmm. like cognitive. Yeah. Like it's this like, get out of your head, get into your body Yes, to where that, that to me sort of perpetuates the type of like, dualism disintegration Mm -hmm. bifurcation yes exactly (laughs) that i feel like we are not speaking from so i just like for me personally i just want to be like that's not really the direction that i am interested in going Mm -hmm. to me it's always about the the third like the togetherness of the the mind and the body yeah 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 so even though we're talking about them from a psychological perspective as therapists we are also understanding that this is from an integrated embodiment perspective like where we're talking about it from a mind-body connection that's what emerges from right etc right and i i think that like that concept of mind-body connection is another one of those phrases that you know we're using it all the time but i think a lot of us feel a little uncertain like what exactly are we talking about and so i think you know part of the point that you're making bridger is like we're really used to thinking about embodiment as Oh yeah. Remember that you have a body, Mm -hmm. right? Um, and sort of this top down imposition of, Oh yeah, I need to remember to involve my body in what I'm doing, bring my body along in this process, not forget that I have one, et cetera. Um, but I think 
the integrated approach actually invites us to think about embodiment as a reflexive process, a cyclical process, and much more of a conversational approach Mm. um, between what we experience as our mind self and our body self. Um, and not, you know, kind of getting caught in the trap of which one is more right or which one is wrong, which one should be supreme, um, because all of that is decided in other ways. We don't Mm -hmm. actually have as much control over that as we like to think. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and so as far as therapists are concerned, I think the most important thing for us to be curious about when we're thinking about anything in regards to embodiment, um, is the reflexive process of how does the way that I'm thinking affect my body? Yes, that's relevant. But also, whatever I'm doing, if I'm trying to do it in an embodied way, sometimes it's about uh, reflecting on what my body is actually doing in this mm. situation, right? Not trying to change it, not trying to make it into anything, um, but actually remembering that it's been busy doing things all along, mm. right? Embodiment does not uh, change our lived experience of something. It reminds us that it has been happening behind the scenes, whether we've been paying attention to it or not. Mm. Um, so embodiment is about, uh, reflecting on what has been going on and Mm. how our body has been shaping our experience and producing our behaviors and influencing all kinds of things, um, often outside of our awareness. That's the other direction that it flows. Like, Mm. yes, it has that top down element, but we, we need to remember that, uh, more importantly is the other direction because we forget that one more often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, I didn't even think we were going to go this direction, <laughs> but it reminds me a lot of um, an article I read by Ed Tronic. Mm-hmm. He was talking about multiple levels of meaning to where you're making meaning, even if it's not explicit and conscious mm-hmm. oh, yes. um, and you're forming kind of directions of firing patterns in your brain mm-hmm. and you're forming information and stuff like that. And he talks about, he was specifically talking about emotion, but he talked about how there's these emotional um, activation patterns, EMAPs. And Mm. these EMAPs are kind of twofold. There is the rain Mm. of EMAPs, which is your moment-to-moment experience in the present. And that rain falls on a mountain, which is an EMAP. And that EMAP, so the rain is directed mm. by how the previous rain has carved the mm-hmm. mountain. And mm-hmm. so your current emotional experiences find the creeks of past experiences mm-hmm. and right. emotional experience. Yeah. yeah. And it, this is that sort of dual attention in embodiment, mm-hmm. which is both like you are experiencing something, which is the moment to moment rain. And that moment to moment rain is falling on past experiences mm-hmm. that have formed your overall across time mm-hmm. perception of embodiment, yeah. which is how do I look down at my body and see it and mm-hmm. experience it, but also how is my body experiencing the present moment and that communicating up to my brain. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, that bi-directional flow of information, I think holistically is the best definition of embodiment in action. Mm. I think another definition of embodiment that I really like, and and they say something really similar in here, although I've um, run into this one before, is the concept of knowledge becoming grounded, Mm. right? So the version that I've heard is that uh, when knowledge becomes grounded and embodied, it turns into wisdom. And the felt sense of that, like the difference between knowledge and wisdom is that wisdom is held within the all of us so that it sort of bubbles up spontaneously, um, 
in whatever context it is relevant for without me having to specifically go look for a piece of information, right? It is present and able to be acted upon because that knowledge has become embodied. Um, it's not just a piece of information that I know. It is a, a reality that I have lived and that I feel and that is held in my cells in a new way. Um, so that concept of knowledge and information and cognitive awareness becoming grounded um, kind of speaks to that um, that cycle of information. Yeah. That, that mm -hmm. the rain comes down, there's the knowledge, but when it really becomes grounded in the body, it's carving in in a new way so that every experience that I have after that is following that same pattern. And if it is you know, a pattern of wisdom, then that gives us a, a beautiful... Um, kind of picture of how embodiment practices can really support us throughout our lifetime. Now there's other things that do that in non-supportive ways and we can have embodied trauma <laughs> and that is a lived reality for a lot of us. Um, and I think another really, really important piece of this is that embodiment is not something that we learn to do. It is a fact, right? Like it's, it's happening. It's actually our, our choice to become aware of how we are embodied and the way that our embodiment is showing up in our in our life in different ways um, where we can begin to work with it but it's not something that you have or don't have are doing or not doing we're all doing it because to be human is to be embodied um, and so i think there's a little bit of uh, i don't want to say confusion but maybe some of the conversations around embodiment give us this idea that you got to go learn how to be a, a master yogi in order to get embodied and that's not yeah. how that works <laughs> Yeah, I love, and, and we're going to get into this with the three kind of, yeah. um, what do they call them? The mechanisms. Three mechanisms. Mechanisms, yeah. Um, but I this, as, as a therapist, mm -hmm. is so like relieving to a client when you start talking about like, well, I think we need to tap into like the wisdom of like the moment mm -hmm. and like all that is here and all that is always with you because you're a body and you're, you're experiencing the world and often they're like, well, I don't know how, to, like I had a client say like, can you just tell me how to feel? What do you mean when you say <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah. Like tell me what to do. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you don't, you don't have to do anything. Yeah. You, you already, already are. are. Yes. The only kind of like moment that we need to pay attention to is just like the quiet moment of you kind of reflecting in. Yeah. And that like, I don't have to go yeah, I don't have to go be a yogi. Yeah. I don't have to go. I don't have to go meditate um, for hours. Yeah, yeah, I don't even have to go climb a mountain and sit up there for uh -huh. like two days. That's like, cool. I'm glad. Which would be awesome. This I, is, <laughs> and not to like throw the wrench in the gear, but like this is interesting because that person who says that, who actually has a hard time, is themselves, that's not just a choice they're making to not process the information Absolutely. coming from the oh, body. Yeah. Like, yeah. To, so to just say to that person, you're already doing it, just be. They're like, okay, well, I'm, like through the process of affrontation, I'm mm -hmm. not aware of the information mm -hmm. yeah. and that's actually like yeah. biologically based now. Yeah. So we do have to relearn how yeah. to embody. Maybe yes. we aren't, we don't need to be taught it, but often we need to relearn. Right. Yeah. Well, Which is like, Oh, you go. Okay. I was <laughs> going to say, <laughs> because in that context, like I, I'm so glad you brought that up because implicitly mm -hmm. if we're like collapsing back on our previous episodes, you know man is an island unto himself. Yes. And mm -hmm. so by saying you're already doing it, the you that I'm talking to is a part of a we. Mm -hmm. Right. And so by me doing it, they are also yes. doing it, which is yes. what we're going to like talk about through simulation and stuff. But yes. um, that inner subjective like space of like you're already doing it 
is a sort of like, I am upregulating their system Mm -hmm. into saying like, oh, and then I'm showing like, oh yeah, see, like you just noticed that. And then we're doing it, but then that's teaching the brain that it can tolerate that amount of circuit affective experience awareness in that zone of like the insula insula cortex that's like noting the body yeah yeah well and i think um you know on a very deep level and where i think we should move into talking about the mechanisms because i think this gets really relevant our our lived experience of embodiment has a lot to do with what kind of mirroring we received early in life and that has everything to do with how our system evaluates what information, both internal information and external information, is relevant to really keep track of in any given situation. Mm-hmm. And so if I grew up in a culture where embodiment practices, meaning the explicit awareness of embodiment, was something that was very present and highlighted, I am going to have more uh, explicit awareness and language and ability to articulate and keep track of my own experience in that way versus a culture where that's not prioritized or highlighted or just not that version, um, then I'm not going to have developed language around that. So a really easy example of this is uh, I grew up in Southeast Asian culture. And in Southeast Asia, you start getting like professional massages when you're like eight years old. Like it's just part of the culture. Mm. You just get massage all the time. So what that means is you're having conversations regularly with somebody about how it feels to your body to experience this activity of receiving touch and massage. Mm. And, you know, how's the pressure? Is this too much? Does this feel good, et cetera? And that raises your explicit awareness and your ability to self-reflect on, oh, how does that feel to my body, Mm. right? Another easy example of this is in families where sports is a big central focus of the culture right? You're taught what to focus on. You're also taught what to ignore. (laughs) For instance, pain, right? What is your relationship to pain? Did you grow up in a family where it was a shake it off culture, right? You're in pain, rub some dirt on it, move on. That actually diminishes your ability to sense, actually have felt sense of pain in your body, as opposed to a family. If you had somebody that was super reactive to any time you got hurt, it literally will make you more sensitive to pain responses in your body, right? So, um, our body is always responding and reacting to our environment because it's trying to figure out what's important and what's not important. Right. And Mm. that gets really, really relevant whenever we're looking at these mechanisms of embodiment. And also, what does it mean to try to increase our awareness of it? Yeah. 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 And I think there's a there's a reference that's in here um, that's mentioned a couple of times throughout the article. Lawrence Williams work on scaffolding. Mm -hmm. And that to me is, you know, just paying attention to the way that these higher mental processes, even like our consciousness, like what we are made aware of, is based on these these early uh, experiences with the physical world, mm-hmm. like before we're ever able to quote unquote, like intellectually engage with the environment, mm-hmm. we are building representations of our world, of the meaning that that world has of our place in that world. And we're then behaving from those yeah. representations. And that whole process is fueled by these three mechanisms. Exactly. Like these mechanisms are what's happening in that exploration of our environment and building meaning out of those experiences. Yep. Um, which I think is really cool that we can like say, Oh, well that's what's happening here. <laughs> yeah. Real fast before we jump in, I just want to like make a note. We're going to jump into the mechanisms, but, um, of just like the form, the, the conversation around embodiment 
has to take like we're already like fighting implicitly so many binaries and Mm -hmm. like choppings of what we're saying and so it's like it's a very interesting i don't know why in western society when you start talking about and it's like ingrained in us like we were even doing it like Like we have to do it science does it like (laughs) the second you start talking body you start talking divisive Yes. And it's a, this interesting, like, oh my yeah. goodness. No, wait, hold on. Yeah. Let's wait. wait. We That's gotta not tether. What I yeah. Just, hold I on. just have to listen. Well, and I think, well, okay, this is a huge conversation, but I just want to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll keep it brief. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that has a lot to do with our awareness and our current like cultural wrestling with this feeling of what is the right way to be what is the right kind of self to be? What is the right kind of body to be? What is the right kind of embodied to be, right? We're very, very concerned culturally about uh, doing things correctly, accurately, rightly, um, goodly. That's not a word, but I'm using it. <laughs> Coined. <laughs> Coined, right Coined right now. You guys know what I mean. Um, and I think that that's part of why is that when you move into embodiment practice, there is way more diversity than there is commonality, right? There, there is a, a local self when we're talking about embodiment, there's not a right way to be or a right way to have an experience. And so the topic of embodiment highlights our struggle with really interacting, um, empirically with diversity, Mm-hmm. Like that gets so complicated for us. And the minute that you start including bodies, it moves us into this realm where we're, you know, we come face to face with the implications of how much diversity is really present in our species. And what do we do this when we're then attempting to work empirically mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, be an academic and use a scientific method? Oh my gosh, it starts to get real complicated. And so I think that we feel this sense of we have to lay the groundwork for how we're going to do this before we can even attempt to do this. Because it's mm-hmm. so complicated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In that way, I just want to throw this out for maybe a listener to who would appreciate this. But in the Western view of the body, in Kleinian terms, would mm. be a paranoid schizoid position. Mm. We objectify it and we try to distance it because it is seen as the endangering. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the self, which is your thoughts and your like cognitive like expressions, that's seen as like the endangered Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. which is a very interesting kind of view that we have whereas like in therapy if i can if i can tap into more of your somatic bodily experience we can open up and and recontextualize we can reconsolidate memory networks because we're we're opening ourselves up to current and past moments and like it's all found in the experiencing self which is body-based that's right dependent then well okay so this gets like deep into the weeds of the whole you know winnicott cohut conversation around false self true self right Mm. and how like currently we very much have a culture in psychotherapy of being very interested in uh, the emergence of the true self being freed from a false self right and body um, right now is positioned precariously between those two things of we we have this felt sense and this awareness that body is kind of a royal road to true self right? That if we can really get in touch with what our body is sensing, that maybe we're going to start to have some evidence there of what do I really feel? Who is the real me? Right. Mm. But I think that there's also some danger in that dichotomy 
right? And here we go again with the split <laughs> of then saying anything that doesn't feel like the real me, if it is in my body, what do I do with it, mm. right? That the actually the false self and the true self is both present in the body. And what does that mean for us? And how do we interact with these different things that we encounter as held in our body? Um, and what are they for? And which ones are right and true and false and all of that? And so I think that uh, whenever we go to engage with body, we really, really come face to face with that felt split between false self and true self. Mm -hmm. And as therapists, we run right up against that all the time. And mm -hmm. what I don't want to do is just say, ah, don't worry about it. It's all relevant. But there's a little part of me that actually does feel that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think like not getting caught up in, is this particular sensation that I'm experiencing part of false self or true self, or is it valid for exploration, et cetera. But really, really knowing that when we come to interact with body, that a stance of curiosity and letting it kind of unfold over time, it will teach us if we understand what we're looking at. But we still really struggle in this field. And I think one of the reasons why we started with this article is that it's young, right? On one hand, in Eastern civilizations, it's really freaking old. But in Western understanding and including it as uh, something to be researched with the Western uh, scientific method, it's really young, like very, mm -hmm. very young. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in SIP and our research, it, we've mentioned the word time so many times. <laughs> and I'm, I feel like I yeah. was coined originally the, the time guy always wanting to talk about time. Mm -hmm. But now I feel like I've, we've all come to that place yeah. mm -hmm. and realize like when we start talking, like part of the dichotomy is time. Like yeah. what you're experiencing now is a experience of the past so your present is in your past, but then also like you are presently experiencing. And so like all of it is you, all and of it that is experiencing. Is possible because of our body. Yeah. Like what this, this thing that we call body past is held here and present is experienced here and future is made here. Like it, it is the thing that holds this weird collapsed timeline that we live in of all of it happening all of the time. And so I do think that anytime we come to embodiment practice, uh, we immediately feel this invitation to complexity and it has to be that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I can see your wheels spinning, Caleb. <laughs> so many. <laughs> it's like so many conversations that I really want to so have. So little so time. So many notes that we're going to record. <laughs> so many other podcast episodes to come. Okay. So how do we want to start the conversation around mechanisms? Well, I guess, you know, they lay out sort of um, three qualitative effects uh, on the mind that these mechanisms have. And so I, what I like to do is just kind of go through those. Mm -hmm. And again, this is how they're viewing embodiment is impacting our information processing. Mm, so how yeah. does the body and all of its mechanisms impact information processing and organizing experience? And what they say is, um, first, these um, embodiment effects uh, directly alter a person's state of mind, feelings, or information processing. Mm -hmm. And this is the first kind of um, mechanism. mechanism, which is direct state induction. Yeah. Second, they change how readily specific information comes to mind, thus influencing the mental contents instead of the mode of operation, which is the second mechanism, which they call modal priming. Mm -hmm. And third, 
is these they can lead to compatibility effects with concurrent auto, automa, uh, automatic simulations changing, for example, fluency and preferences, which they coined sensory motor simulation. And we're going to give you guys brief little examples of all of those. So if that didn't mean much to you on first glance, don't worry. We'll, we're going to yeah. go a little bit deeper, not a ton deeper. But one thing I do want to do is give a, like a real life example of each of these, which they do in the article. Oh, and yeah. I found that super helpful. I'm yeah, like, awesome. oh, that makes sense. <laughs> don't you love yeah. it when researchers... Make it practical. Like, yeah, yeah, like, oh, like, yeah, like actually tell you what they mean yeah. by things. It's yeah. very, very helpful. Because <laughs> the three of these processes, you know intimately you as do. a human. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, like the minute we give an example, it's like, oh, well, oh, yeah, that I get. I know what right. that is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the first one uh, being direct state induction. Um, I think that uh, one of the things that stood out to me is this idea that some body states directly induce affective or non-affective feelings. Um, And specifically, they uh, note that it's not mediated by higher cognitive functioning, right? So this is happening um, without our executive functioning really getting involved. This direct state induction is doing just that. It directly induces a state. Mm -hmm. And uh, what they mean by state here is an affective state, a feeling in our body. It directly induces it without um, our cognitive functioning coming in to, to mess with it for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. So they talk about, um, if your body takes a certain position or posture that can have an effect on your valence of judgment, Mm -hmm. um, how you, if you were given a lexicon, it may or may not influence based on the complexity and the amount of, um, direct state induction, kind of how, what words you choose and stuff like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that, so that's like very practically like even the shape of your body mm-hmm. could influence the yeah. appraisal you have yeah. of a word. Yeah. yeah. One of the articles they reference is um, the uh, valuation of right versus wrong mm-hmm. for right-handed and left-handed people yeah. holding heavy objects in their right or left hand. Yes. Given their handedness. Given, yes. given yeah, what their preference of hand. Um, and that's just a wild like experience yeah yeah. that's going to set you in a certain state which is like a callback to our bruce perry article of like neurosequential dependence and i would say yeah like neurosequential preparedness Uh like if you're in that state of like congruence that this like i'm right-handed i'm holding something with my right hand i feel totally prepared yeah so yeah i'm gonna appraise things positively versus if i'm told with my non-dominant hand to operate I'm going to say, uh, I'd really love to switch because I'm uncomfortable yeah. in my body. Yeah, right I don't now. Know. But all of that, and the, this is an important distinction, is entirely below conscious cognitive awareness yep. or, or production. So yep. one of the examples that I think uh, really kind of helped to make sense of this is the use of Botox injections. Mm-hmm. Right. So there it's, uh, used now pretty commonly that you can treat anxiety and depression, depression. um, by, uh, Botox injections in certain muscle groups that are known, um, to like be involved in the frown response. Mm-hmm. So when Botox comes along and impedes your ability to frown, literally like blocks the muscle. Yeah. From like, so you able- can't frown. Yeah. You will feel less depressed. And that has nothing to do with our cognitive awareness of, I can't frown, and therefore I feel happier. Oh, God, no. That's not what's happening there, right? right? Just because your body is not able to do the thing, it's directly changing the affect state that your body is experiencing. And that's what uh, direct state induction is all about. Right. Yeah. And so, oh, sorry. Well, yeah. It's not that you're going to be happier. Right. It's that you're, you're not in a state that is going to be 
prepared to see like as much negative stimuli around. Right. Yeah. Like you're going to be on a more neutral. Well, okay. I would say that like that is you making a, a judgment call on what is likely going on there. But in this article they say, well, like we can't say that for certain. Mm. We think that's what's going on. And this is what needs to be researched. Yeah. Right. This is the mechanism. But why does the mechanism work? We're still not sure yet. We don't actually know exactly what is happening in the nervous system that creates this direct state induction, although people that know a lot about neurobiology can take some educated guesses. The research isn't there yet necessarily, but I think there's enough pieces that we can put together a reasonable hypothesis like you just did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they are in this mechanism very specific to the need to distinguish between yeah. the induced state and whatever behavior, yes. positive, yeah. quote unquote, yeah. or yes. negative, quote unquote, comes yeah. out of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's mechanism number one. Direct state induction. Direct state induction. Just mm-hmm. go ahead and induce that state directly, bypass all cognitive function. Do you function. want to give like any type of intentional examples with this or would you rather wait? What do you mean by intentional examples? Like how to utilize this therapeutically. Oh, I would rather wait because okay. I think that in lived reality and practice, they're so uh, mixed together. And we're going to talk about those mixed forms mm-hmm. um, that practically it feels more useful to talk about mixed states than than singular states. Nice. Yeah, yeah I'm for that. Yeah. Cool. Right. I can make an argument either way. <laughs> yep. yeah. Fair. All right. Anybody want to intro mechanism number two? Mechanism number two, you're thinking less broad, but more nuanced, Mm -hmm. which is an interesting juxtaposition. Uh, Mechanism number two is modal priming. Mm -hmm. Um, So modal priming is um, how specific information comes to mind, thus influencing, well, it's how the embodied experience um, can change how readily specific information comes to mind, thus influencing the mental contents. of what does actually come to mind. Yeah. I think one thing that feels super important about modal priming is that it is dependent on the um, associative networks that the human is already holding. So this is very influenced by culture, by previous education, by previous experience. History of your lived experience. Yes. Yeah. Because that's actually what it's interacting with. So this is not um, universal. It's not a historical. um, It is absolutely dependent on our lived experience as a human being, including the culture, the family, the environment that we live in. um, Because whatever association we're going to make is going to be unique to our own lived experience of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do, well, okay. So I have a really good example of this that just happened last week in, in my office. So one session, I had a client that sat down on my couch and the couch in my therapy office is a lovely, beautiful, dark green velvet couch. Mm. And client sat down, picked up one of the um, velvet pillows and started petting it like a puppy. (laughs) And made a comment about how soothing the feeling of touching velvet was to her, right? And then literally the next client comes in and says, do you have a blanket? I can't touch velvet. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that is modal priming right there. Um, 
And now that was a direct conversation about what was producing the modal priming. But if, if we had explored that one person is going to be having an affective experience of feeling soothed, of feeling more regulated, of feeling taken care of by sitting on a velvet couch. And that next human has this sensation of, uh, being unsafe, of being untaken care of, of needing to get out of that environment. And to mm. me, that's a really good example of modal priming and how it works with our previous associations yeah. to the stimuli. So. I'm wondering for both of you, but Caleb, you came to mind very specifically here of me wondering as I was reading this, if Caleb was also thinking about symbolic communication mm-hmm. and the organization of mind, because for me, modal priming, um, is so dependent on this bridge between my intrapsychic, like organization of mind detection, et cetera, and the intersubjective or interpersonal unfolding of reality in front of me and like me inside of it. Um, because it, it, they go into this in the article, of not just being concerned with your physiological uh, or sensory motor uh, modal primings, such as that velvet association, mm-hmm. but also uh, any type of sensory input. Mm-hmm. So smells, also even hearing things, yeah. and even language then, the mm-hmm. semantic primings. Yeah. but yeah, Language that cues. Mm-hmm. So like they talk about the experiment where um, they are talking about fish. Well, mm-hmm. first they have they just have a smell of fish and people are more, um, untrustworthy. Uh, yeah. They're, they're more, <laughs> something um, smells distrusting fishy in here, of, yeah. literally and figuratively. Yeah. Yes. yes. That's what Both. it is. <laughs> but then they just like start talking about fish and that influences judgment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that brings up like this one out of all of them brought up for me, um, DeShazer. And he has this book called words were originally magic. Mm. Mm-hmm. In which he talks about like the importance of finding those, cueing words and like you can also hear george kelly's consolatory Mm. constructs of like what's that word that is going to bring into alignment yeah all of your embodiment and your like associated to stack it all information Mm -hmm. and to sort of align it yeah and you know it when you hit it with a client oh yeah and we do this in emdr all the time Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and it just like they like their body's just like yep yep i'm in yeah yeah i'm so glad you brought that up Thank you. I feel very seen. I was thinking of you. Yeah. 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 That's crazy because I had Deshazer are written on here. And so that's awesome. I'll just call it out for you. Yeah. yeah it's, a, you. it's a nice, you know, uh, pitch to you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I loved this. And for me, like just as a, from a developmentalist perspective, which is like, that's my bend is looking at even just the stacking of uh, memory over time and how Mm. our concept of self and other emerges from that. Um, Modal priming is just so huge. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's the way that we, it happens in an instant and it is the way that we know which templates to pull Mm -hmm. in our lived experience to like make sense of the present moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we talked about the sensing behavior narrating self last week. Yeah. That's also somewhat based off of Pongsep's work. Yes. And this would be like a good time. Just very briefly, I'm going to go over Pongsep and bring it kind of into this moment because um, modal priming is, in in essence, is like the transition between a primary um, process and a secondary process. Mm-hmm. Primary process is pure like state control. So it's where your homeostatic affects are. It's where your emotional affects and your sensory affects are. Those are going to cue your system through the seven affective states into behavioral activation in an attempt to meet a homeostatic need. Yeah. So then 
this secondary process is what you're talking about developmentally is how you begin um, through the basal ganglia to learn yes how which like, of these states is going to accomplish this based on the environment yeah mm-hmm. and what associations conceptually am I making based on primary process cues yeah front that and you have to be connected to those mm. if if you're gonna change if you're gonna be a complex human being who's going to organize experience and recognize the nuances of differences you're actually not my brother you're a bridger and so mm. but you you're like the same age and okay wait okay, and i'm okay i'm tapped into like my sensory experience of you primary processes so secondary processes tell me that you're not my brother so i need to react differently mm-hmm. okay in order to do that though i have to be connected to these mm. primary processes but i can also change my primary processes by relearning and that's what well, yeah, they're talking given about the right environment yeah, yes. yeah modal priming you can actually like bi-directionally change kind of how your then state induction is like in the room yeah and what your associations are and it can mm-hmm. directly affect your state mm-hmm. yeah this is one of the things that i love so much about research that is you know kind of paying attention to this because it points out something that i just so in it's just so endearing to me about the human condition and that it's, we're really just like animals mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of the time. Like so many, so many people kind of have this, at least in my experience of like doing research that it's more so into like the fine, uh, like theorem or like the intellectual side of things. But this is like, you're a conditionable creature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to know how to respond in a situation based on a conditioned response. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that's just what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even, even involving our, uh, very evolved executive functioning. Yeah. It is still conditionable. That's right. right? The more we learn, it's just that we have more complex and associative networks that can be primed. Very slow up there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, and that's even like what we're talking about. Like those high level information processing units are like they're dependent upon these lower levels. And scaffolded. Scaffolded. Upon. Yes. Like even the raw ingredients that went to making them before they ever began mm-hmm. was based on information already gathered and already organized mm-hmm. in the sensing and behaving. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I on my paper I drew a triangle which we use for SIP, but also Pongsep uses it. So there's some good connection. It's validity. And he <laughs> bottom we all layer agree. Maslow. We're oh, all yeah. On the oh same yeah, page. we're all on the same page. <laughs> bottom level, the foundation is a primary process, second level, secondary process, third level, tertiary affects. Okay, and processes. So in the um, state induction, what was that? What's that they call that? Um, direct state induction mm-hmm. I mapped on to Ponksep's triangle mm-hmm. is the whole bottom portion is mm-hmm. a primary process because mm-hmm. it's got a lot of different behavioral expressions it's very broad mm-hmm. but it's also very rigid and simple mm-hmm. then in the transition so halfway up the first level into halfway of the second level so not just the second level but that kind of middle zone to me, that's where I see modal priming, mm. kind of like in that mm. transition yeah. zone. Yeah. And then I see the next one, sensory motor, as kind of like somewhat in that, um, um, like 
the Transition. second level. Yeah. 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 Like three quarters mm. up the first and three quarters into the second. Right. Mm. Right. But they, they build upon each other, which is why, you know, I made that comment about to me, it makes the most sense to conceptualize them as they sort of present in real life as mostly in a mixed way. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think in, you know, most lived human experiences, we've got a little of all of it going on or one leading to the other in kind of a cascade effect. Mm. Um, so, I think that's a good spot to talk about the third one. Yeah, and I'm so excited because this is one that you and I particularly got jacked on. Yes. So I I really want to, I want to hear you go off. Well, I want to hear you too because (laughs) I sort of like handed you a question. I'm like, tell me your thoughts, Caleb, because I know my thoughts and I want to hear yours. So... Um, Let's explain it first. Yes. So simulation. Mechanism number three is sensory motor simulation. And uh, this one, to me, sort of intuitively made the most sense right off the bat because I feel like we just experience it all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So sensory motor simulation is all about when we perceive a stimulus, automatically it triggers the reenacting or interacting with it internally. Like immediately when we see an object, we're imagining picking it up, right? We know what it's going to feel like, right? You don't have to walk over and touch a wall to know what it would feel like because you've touched it before Mm. and your simulation system immediately kicks into gear, right? And then uh, if you're watching another human being do something or interact with something, you're having a simulated experience internally of what it would feel like in your body to do that thing. Mm -hmm. If you watch somebody play a sport, you're going to have a a reenactment happening internally. Um, One of the the funny ways that this shows up for some people is that when they're listening to someone talk, they can't stop their mouth from forming the words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they're, they're mimicking their simulation system is so engaged with what they're listening to that they're actually, um, mimicking the pronunciation of the words as they're listening. That is a, a simulation system that is uh, very active in that moment for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, another example of this, if you're familiar with what ASMR is, right? My body has this big physiological reaction to watching something else happening. Mm. Even though I'm not personally engaged in it, my simulation system is so powerful that it can be as if I'm having that physiological experience, even though I'm not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of these things that it's in, and you read the sentence, um, of the, uh, like the introduction to the mechanism, but, uh, like for the seeing objects that afford handling evokes the simulation of grasping mm-hmm. that word afford. I feel like we could just skip over, but that word afford has actually been the like impetus for much research yes. on even our information processing systems, understanding of affordances, which yeah. is like when we see an object and we have this process that engages wherein we assess its affordances. Yes. What, what can, can it I, do? Yeah. What yeah. can I use that for? Yeah. Is that a tool or not? And this is why I don't remember, or I don't know if you guys uh, like had these experiences in like, uh, with geology or something like that, but a super dense mass, why mm-hmm. it's so perplexing, especially to children at that age or wherever they were in their developmental timeline, like a piece of rock that is like a hundred times more dense than mm-hmm. another rock that is mm-hmm. that same size. Mm-hmm. It's just like, what the, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it just doesn't, yeah. it just like breaks. It doesn't these. compute. The simulation is yeah. not working. Yeah. Yes. These affordances, I don't have a template for this. Yes. Like the density is unimaginable yes. to me. So that word template is mm-hmm. really important when it comes to simulation. Yes. And I think it's that spot, um, was one of the places that my mind went, 
oh goodness, there's a whole lot of very practical application yes. in therapy. I think as therapists, we are capitalizing, for lack of a better phrase, on the simulation system all the time. Yep. Like we're utilizing it in therapy all the time, necessarily. We also utilize it in parenting. We utilize it in literally every social interaction we have. Our simulation system is going to be very involved. If you want to know what empathy is, it is your simulation system. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. There, there's so much about our human to human interactions and even our human to animal interactions that are using our simulation system in order to respond um, and figure out how to show up in that moment. Um, and so in therapy, I feel like out of all three, this is the one that's the easiest for me to imagine in really concrete, practical ways, how we could use this mechanism, uh, in therapy with our clients. Yeah. Yeah. I had two thoughts about, um, and more so Bridger for Peter Fonagy and his idea of mentalization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mentalizing mentalization. Um, you know, how, how much is he talking about the connection to affect circuits and, um, like primary into secondary processes with mentalization? Yeah. Cause I think what I hear are some potential echoes of, uh, engagement between these two kind of well, concepts, me, but maybe it not. It finds its home in the sensory motor cortex. Okay. Which we don't, we haven't talked a lot about, Mm-mm. but to me, that's where, you know, one of these centers in the brain in the neocortex that is associated with interconnectivity of lower parts of the brain. And so Fonagy's work, you know, is kind of looking at broadly the theory of mind and its mentalization capacities. So how integrated is one's mind can be linked with how well they can uh, mentalize with another person, which Mm -hmm. very just broadly is to be able to understand the affective state and connect with it of another person. And then how that like have an awareness of how that shapes my, uh, own affective process and my thoughts and then the behaviors that we will engage in. And so in the connectivity of mind, and I think this is, we should go into this in another podcast cause I don't want to get too far off of where we are, but in the interconnectivity of mind, mentalization is based on the uh like the transparency of the transition between the primary secondary to tertiary process Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. what is your lived experience of that transition from detecting stimuli to responding to stimuli integrative capacity exactly that yeah Yeah. because and the reason i kind of went there and then also heard echoes of like memory reconsolidation Mm yes is like i wrote in this section like is this illuminating another in another way, mm-hmm. illuminating the importance of the therapist as subject, right? Not as object of therapist in that I'm going to like, and I, I talked about it earlier about that, like client, like you're already doing it. You're already feeling in a way like my, then like I am like catching their like sort of panic in my simulative simulative networks, my mm-hmm. mirror neuron networks. Mm-hmm. And I'm like attuning to that, but then also like proposing an alternative. Right. So reconsolidating mismatch experience and then introducing into the space. Well, I noticed like you smiled and you like, mm-hmm. that was relieving to mm-hmm. note it to, for me to even just say like, you're already doing it or that was frustrating or what my, you know, different clients react. But, my client was like relieved by that. Yeah. Oh, I don't have to do anything. Yeah. And in that way, am I proposing a sort of simulation in which I know it 
and I'm giving their body an opportunity to sync up with that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Well, and I think um, along with that, I think what happens in those moments, which is actually kind of a, a mixed state of more than one of these mechanisms at the same time, is that even making that comment to your client of something along the lines of, I wonder what it would feel like to realize that you're already doing this, that this isn't just a brand new thing to learn, but you're already in the midst of it. You and I together here in this room right now, we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Even saying those words produces a simulation in their system of imagining and actually being invited to feel right now what it would feel like. Um, and that produces an affect shift right then and there. And mm. I think that's why uh, intuitively all of us uh, really prefer to work very immediately, right? Um, like we're not talking about things outside of the room constantly. We're actually talking about what's happening in the here and now because the here and now moment is where we can produce those simulation response and actually have mm-hmm. an experience with the client right here and right now of the desired affect shift. Like mm-hmm. we can make it happen right here. Now, is it perfect and is it going to stick forever? Well, that depends on a lot of factors and we can talk about those later. But even the the reflections that we're making based on the mechanism of, of uh, sensory motor simulation just by talking about it, we're mm. producing that affect shift. Mm. And if we know what we're doing and how to work with that and really draw attention to it and help them connect with the felt sense of that simulation and allow that simulation to become more and more real. Um, and then, you know, once we can tune into the affect sense of it, then we can move into wrapping a healthy story around it and make yeah. meaning of it together. And now we've got good therapy. This is what I was referring to in the beginning when I asked if we wanted to explore them individually, because I feel mm-hmm. like when you're exploring, um, with your client, um, their experience of something, or even if you're talking about change in the room right now, or what, what's difficult about that, it can be so useful to go through these three mechanisms individually, experientially right now. Yeah. Yeah. Like practice them. Yes, exactly. And explore them as, uh, you know, as like windows into memory and present experiential Mm -hmm. awareness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and to teach them how to work with the tools that their body naturally uses. Yeah. Like the, these are, you know, the, um, you know, using modal priming as an example, the associations that we have in our system are not universal. Those are going to be local to the individual that we're dealing with. However, the presence of modal uh, priming as a mechanism available to a human being, that is universal. If you've right? got a nervous system. That's right. And, and so I think it's really helpful for us to distinguish what is universal that we can work with reliably in every human being that we work with without falling into the trap of making assumptions that their associations are going to be the same as mine. Right? Mm-hmm. My velvet couch experience is going to be different than their velvet couch experience. So as long as we're um, accommodating for those individual differences, we can still rely on the universal principles of the mechanisms present in every human being. And that's what these three things are. We all have the capacity, not just the capacity, we're all doing these all the time and experiencing them all the time. And so they're present as uh, tools that we can utilize in therapy all the time. Mm -hmm. And I like that idea of like working really directly with our clients and teaching them that this is how your body likes to work. So yeah, like primary example is like when we're talking about specific to memory reconsolidation, like talking about a traumatic memory, um, for me, it can be really useful to explore, of course, if it feels safe to everyone involved in the situation, but if it feels safe to talk about the way the like 
the environment was situated, Mm -hmm. like where things were, what was happening. Also how your body felt in relation to the space of, you know, where, what position were you like taking, was your arm bent or, you know, like Mm -hmm. all of these things of like looking at the ways that that's that physiological state actually induced the feeling and was then captured or wrapped around with the unfolding of the environment around and then to go up into then the modal priming and then to go even farther up into the sensory motor simulation to then enact the memory reconsolidative process by which we can actually reintegrate the mind which i actually think is exactly what emdr and a couple of the other you know favored modalities that we have i think that's exactly what it's doing that's right and part of why it's so that's why therapy works yes (laughs) when we know what we're doing yeah yeah when even like tapping into the the present moment you said if it's safe for all parties Hmm. and that in its way in its own way is it going through the three yeah like what Mm -hmm. state are you coming in with mm-hmm. what does what this associ- invitation yeah. associate yeah to when i say like of the state, hey yeah. i what if we talked about this like yeah where do where what associative mm-hmm. leaps are you kind of experiencing right yeah. now and then like can can we simulate something different yeah yes and can we, mm-hmm. can i propose this and and we find some grounding that is different mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful complex process it is yeah but i feel like this is uh just a really good beginning point of being able to um, speak really directly and practically about what in the world do we actually do with embodiment practice as therapists, Um, how to do embodied therapy, which is actually what SIP is all about, is Mm -hmm. teaching therapists how to work in an embodied way, which is not just remembering that you have a body in therapy. (laughs) Yeah, just saying it. Yes, yeah, but it is is really about um, using and utilizing all of these different mechanisms, both in our own body, right, and reflecting on these processes and how they're showing up in our own body as a therapist, how much we rely on simulation constantly Mm -hmm. as a clinician. It is one of our main methods of empathy and connection and attunement. It is so present in the work that we do. And then being able to invite our clients into a shared experience of that so that our work really becomes embodied in this dynamic way. Um, This to me gives language to a lot of the complexity and kind of helps us begin to have um, more productive conversations. And this article is really directed at more productive research, but I think practically it also leads to more productive conversation and more productive practice for those of us that are working clinically. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to dance so well in what is typically uh, a realm of discussion that has associations with uh, cutting, divergence, mm-hmm. binary. Yeah, we're split. Gonna, we're going to dance and we're going yeah. to simulate what it is to have these sort of conversations about That's the body right. and engage them right. and not split up the whole person. Yeah. Yes. So I'm going to say something super evocative here at the end and then we're going to wrap up. You ready? Okay. Does <laughs> that make everybody nervous? Just kidding. Sometimes when people say stuff like that uh-huh. and then they say, are you ready? I think that's rhetorical. There's that is, no way you're actually asking. No, that is asking. rhetorical. That is absolutely <laughs> say rhetorical. Say what you're going to say. Yeah, here, here's what I'm going to say. It's impossible to be disembodied. Okay. The, the phrase disembodied is actually a misnomer that I would really like us to get curious about why we need that and how we could actually articulate what we mean by that better. A lack of awareness of the way that we're experiencing embodiment is not the same mm. thing as actually being disembodied. Um, 
So we will continue that conversation. But the reason why I add that here at the end is because I think when we have a better understanding of what we're really talking about, it helps us not to use overgeneralizing words that kind of lose real meaning because it ends up meaning nothing. <laughs> it's so mm, impractical yeah. um, to tell their, your client or to tell yourself that you're being disembodied um, feels discouraging. And it also happens to be biologically untrue right? If you're still living and breathing, you are absolutely embodied and understanding and being more aware of what that feels like to you can yeah. take some work and some, some skill building, but you're not actually walking around as disembodied unless you believe in ghosts. Right. Mm -hmm. Disembodied the way we so often mean it is actually dissociation. That's right. And I was just about to say, there's and this that is where I would like to go with the conversation yes. yeah. later. <laughs> there's this hilarious and I work somewhat with teenagers i can't pull that card as much so i guess i'll just have to own it as part of myself like watching you <laughs> watching tiktok and instagram trends now i was gonna say because you, you no longer can claim it as research I, can, I can't really claim it as much anymore it's but yours. it's not research right. it's my ongoing research Who's but to there's say? this really own funny it. like meme format where it's like is this person attractive or are you lonely like that sort of <laughs> And That's I want to make one awful. like, are you disembodied or are, are you, you really dissociated? just dissociated? Yeah. Yes. That's yeah, that, amazing. That's what I'm talking about. And that's what I mean by let's have better language to help us actually talk about what we really mean. And what we really mean when we use the phrase disembodied is dissociated from my embodied experience yep. of my life. That is so much more honoring to the actual experience. Um, and to the strategy and the effectiveness of the strategy of dissociating from our embodied experience as a necessary means of survival. To be disembodied um, is not real. To mm. dissociate out of a necessity to survive is uh, exactly true yes. in my experience. Very real. Yeah. So with that, we'll wrap up for today. Hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. I know yeah. that I did. This... Go check out our Patreon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have a Patreon. We do. Uh, where do they go? Patreon.com slash Beyond Healing Center. Beyond Healing Center. We'll right. be there. Go to yeah. the main I hub. We always ask the same. <laughs> What's that thing called <laughs> What's again? Called? It's we like, have a lot of things to keep track it's of. It's really important to us. What is it though? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. We talk about it all the time. It's because we have more than one and we want to double check that we're saying the right one. It is that one. It is that one. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Patreon.com slash Beyond Healing Center. See you guys there. Thanks for listening to this episode. Find us on our website at beyondhealingcenter.com slash media. Also, subscribe to our Patreon to support us at patreon.com slash beyondhealingcenter. Find all episodes on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy what you hear on these episodes and are interested in speaking with one of us at Beyond Healing Institute, we would love for you to reach out about our consultation opportunities. Of all the many things that we do, consultation is one of the things that we enjoy most. We love supporting other clinicians and conceptualizing their cases from a neurobiological and nervous system-informed perspective. We offer individual and group consultation for somatic integration and processing, as well as for EMDR therapy. Individual consultation is a great way to get personal time to reflect on your cases and how you and your work influence one another. Group consultation offers so many opportunities for learning and connection with other like-minded clinicians. Our greatest mission at Beyond Healing Institute is to offer opportunities for professional development and create a supportive community in the field of mental health. Beyond Healing Institute is excited to announce that we're moving. 
Okay, well, we're not moving our building, but we're moving our trainings, continuing education resources, and community events to Canvas. This will help you as a member of the community to stay in contact with other members of the Beyond Healing community, while also providing a platform that brings consistency and convenience to all of our trainings and course offerings. Canvas is an online learning management system that will be your home base for all things Beyond Healing, as well as a virtual campus that will house all of our trainings and continuing education resources. We're so excited to invite you to our virtual campus on Canvas, and we hope to see you there soon.